as I remind you each year when I took the class, I said, I refuse to be a teacher that they say, he's been here so long and we can't get rid of him. <laughs> so I just negotiate for a year at a time and it's running out this month. So express your feelings to Wayne. Where are you, Wayne? He's chairman of the program committee. I'll make a motion that we keep it. <laughs> I'd like to add an amendment to that for the next 20 years. Okay. <laughs> 95. I'll add an amendment that we double his salary. <laughs> well, now, that's, that's an incentive. That's a real incentive. Well, I appreciate your vote of confidence, but I really am serious about the fact that I don't want to overstay myself, and that has been done in instances. Running out on me already. <laughs> I opened myself for that one, didn't I? He's acolyte this morning if you wonder why he's leaving at this time. <laughs> There's an old story that has been in my family for a long time about my great-grandfather. He came home from church one Sunday steaming. And his wife said, what's the matter? And he said, somebody's been telling that preacher lies on me. A guilty conscience needs no accuser. <laughs> Interpreting what the minister had said as being a, a personal evaluation of his own life. Well, that's what our lesson today is all about. Taking a look at our lives in terms of what we ought to be, what we ought to be doing as Christians. Calvin Coolidge has had many sayings attributed to him, and many of them he never said. But this one has a tone of legitimacy about it in that he, being one of few words, came home one day from church and was asked, what did the preacher preach about? And he said, sin. Well, what did he say? He was against it. <laughs> we'll be talking about sin today, and that's rather unusual for us because we have been talking in most of our lessons are the positive attributes of being a Christian and we dwell very little upon the negative attributes of being a Christian. Now I suppose that's necessary from time to time but I have always been a believer that if you fill your life with positive forces you don't have time for the negative forces. If you spend your time ferreting out the negative forces then you end up rather empty. Jesus told about the demons that occupied a house, they were driven out, the house was swept, nice, clean, and empty, just waiting for them to come back in greater numbers. And I think that's the way Christian discipleship really is. Let me pause just for one moment. When I came in, someone said, what's the matter with your voice this morning? And I didn't know something was, but something is. So you, <laughs> you strain your ears if I'm not getting to you with my voice. And I don't know what it is that's caused me to tighten up this morning, but I hope I'll loosen up. But nonetheless, a life that is empty of the thou shalt nots, but not filled with 
the graces of the faith has nothing to boast about in terms of being a committed Christian. It is the nature of who we are that is more important than the things that we do not do. Oftentimes we enumerate the things that are sinful. Oftentimes in my ministry, people have approached me to say, is it sinful to do such and such? I can't find in the Bible where it says anything about it. Well, we don't need to go to the Bible to be specific about whether something is sinful or not. If we are filled with the desire to be good, to do good, and to follow the will of Christ. But the writer of Proverbs today said, let's pause for just a moment and talk about some of the attitudes that we have which may keep us from being full-blown Christians. Now these are not acts that we are not to perform. <clears throat> these are not acts that we are not to perform. These are attitudes that we bear in our being, things that we ought to avoid. And they are powerful. The first of these, he says, and before he enumerates them, he enumerates seven. And he said, these are abominations before God. That's a strong word. God loathes this attitude in person. That carries a stronger weight than most of the commandments of the Bible where we're simply instructed. God loathes these attitudes in persons. Name seven. I could add three more to it like I did last week, <laughs> but I won't. We'll, we'll stay with the writer of Proverbs. First, he says, God loathes a person's tendency to be superior to other people. Thank you. Yeah, I thought of you. I add a little bit. Tastes good whether it does any good or not. <laughs> But the writer of Proverbs says that God loathes arrogance in a person. An arrogance which sets us against other people saying that we are superior to other people. The words he used is haughty eyes. To have haughty eyes. Looking down on people. Now, we have developed in our society many qualifications by which we judge people and their worth. Most of them are visual. Others are simply an awareness of what these persons possess, their occupation. There are certain occupations that people just stand in awe of other occupations that people care little about. And when a person simply assumes a title, then we automatically lift those persons to high places or we lower them down to lower places. We are supposed to be a, a nation in which there are no social classes, but we have 
rapidly become a nation of classes so that we immediately evaluate a person's worth by the profession they follow, the salary that they make, the car that they drive, the part of the city in which they live. These are those automatic references by which we evaluate whether a person is a person of worth or a person of little worth. And God sees us all the same. God looks at the heart and not the possessions of a person or his outward appearance. And when we make those judgments and when we look down upon other people because we feel that they are not of worth, then it displeases God. He finds it an abomination when we become arrogant and look down on other people. Story of a French philosopher who was rather careless with his appearance. His life was pretty much in his mind so that he cared very little about the appearance of his clothes or his being closely shaven, his hair carefully combed. If you were to meet him on the street, you wouldn't know that he had any education at all, yet he was one of the leading philosophers of the land. He became ill one day in a city park and was taken to a hospital. And as he lay in the bed, there were two doctors watching over him. One of them said, well, look, this is a man of no worth. Why don't we just do a little experimenting with him? And knowing that the fellow lying there could understand what he was saying in French, he used whatever Latin he could muster from his medical days to express the thought to his fellow worker. And the philosopher spoke up in a very crisp Latin. Don't call anyone unworthy that God has created. Well, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it makes the point. We judge on the outside, God judges on the inside, and it is an abomination when we look down upon other people, when we are arrogant in our relationship with other people. We are all brothers. We're all sisters. We're all equal in the sight of God. Then the writer of Proverbs leaves from that to say, it is an abomination to God for anyone to have a lying tongue. To be a person of integrity whose word is his bond. That used to be a quality that we expected of everyone. But we have experienced in public life so much the matter of taking truths and spinning it in such a way as we are made to believe something other than what really exists. A lying tongue, going as far as we can in expressing something with maybe not being an outright lie, but at least getting as close to it as we can in order to misrepresent something to one another. And aren't we battered with that during the political campaigns? when innuendos sometimes carry you to the point of believing things that aren't true. And the sad thing about a lying tongue is that it may be a lie, but once it's heard, it becomes a truth to so many people. What damage can be done by lying, misrepresenting, especially 
when we are evaluating other people to others, setting them in a bad frame of reference so that they are diminished in the sight of other people. God loves truth and he abhors a lying tongue. Integrity is one of the greatest possessions that we can have. My, my father was a man of great integrity. If there's anything that could be said about him apart from others is the fact that he was a man of total integrity. Never known anything in his lifetime that could be called against his character. He was a musician, sold pianos from the time that he was a teenager and all of his life was in the business of selling pianos. He sold for the cable piano company on the road in the beginning until he was able to have a store of his own and then he sold pianos for the rest of his life. And it was a, a real joy. Anybody who wanted to buy a piano, if they couldn't pay for it, he'd let them take it anyway and just take their word for it. Most people paid their bills, but a lot of them didn't. They signed a note, but my father never forced them to pay on a note that they weren't willing to pay. An attorney came to him one time and said, I've looked over your books and you've got a fortune of unpaid bills here that are going to be paid. If you'll let me take these names, I'll collect them for you at a certain percentage. And my father was appalled at the idea. He said, there's no way that I'm going to force anyone to make a payment. And he let the bills lie dormant. He would never force a collection. After the war, he sold pianos, but televisions came into being and everybody wanted television sets. They talked him into taking a franchise for television, Motorola television in Mountain City. You know what a small village that is. And so he sold television. You remember, some of you can remember when television sets first came on the market, problems every day or two. You just didn't go very long without burned out tubes, adjustments being made. Who in Mountain City could fix a television set? <laughs> My father made a contract with a television repairman here in Johnson City that whenever a television set needed to be repaired, he would come and repair it. Drive from Johnson City to Mountain City, repair the set, and my father would pay the bill. And the repairman said, why are you paying the bill? These people ought to be paying the bill, it's their sets. And my father said, they expected a set that would give them good service. And if it doesn't give them good service, I have an obligation to see that it does. He didn't stay in a television business very long. <laughs> but that was the kind of attitude he had, a man of total integrity. In no way would he do anything that appeared to be cheating another person. The writer of Proverbs says, it is an abomination before God to have a wicked heart. Now we can interpret a wicked heart in many ways, but immediately there comes to the mind the fact of our feelings about other people. That's a wicked heart. Our feelings, negative feelings about people who are different from ourselves. When we look down upon people with haughty eyes. It comes from a wicked heart because we are prejudiced and we're biased against people, not because who they are individually, but because of the group of which they are a part. A wicked heart 
carries over not just from the fact of our attitudes and our relationships with people, but the desires for ourselves that are unworthy. A wicked heart is coveting what belongs to somebody else, yearning for the things that are unworthy, which leads into the next abomination that the writer says, and that is feet that speed toward sin, eager to do the things that are sinful. It's an abomination to God for us to deliberately walk toward those things. Now, sometimes we can get entrapped in sinful attitudes, get entrapped in doing sinful things, but to move steadily toward those things that are sinful, we know are sinful, they are diminishing to our lives, but we deliberately do it. And so, when we speed toward sinful things, it is an abomination to God. Bloody hands. Of course, taking the life of another person is one of the worst things that we can do. I have never been able to see how anyone could live with themselves if they have taken the life of another person, denied them the opportunity to live out their lives, cutting it short. What is left when a life has ended? All of the promises gone, all of the opportunities that we were created to enjoy are no more. For a person to take another person's life is the worst thing in my mind that a person can commit. And when we do that, it is an abomination to God. But let's broaden that just a little bit and not just relegate it to the back street of the city where there are gangs fighting one another with knives, but we can take the lives of other people in more acceptable ways whenever we take away rights and diminish their abilities, we are, in a sense, taking away the lives of persons. That can be carried in many directions, but the fact remains is that when we diminish or take away the life of another person, God is displeased by that. Jesus said that if you do something that will harm the faith of one of the least of these, it is better that a millstone were to be put about your neck and you were thrown out into the deepest part of the sea. Those are harsh words, but that reflects the attitude of God toward people who are willing to take the lives or diminish the lives of other people. He goes on. He says, it is an abomination to God to bear false witness comes close to the lying tongue, but it has a little broader connotation in that we publicly expose another person in ways that are not true, and thus violates that person's rights, bearing false witness. Trying to bring out bad things about other people when the truth would free them, a false witness will imprison them. And then the final abomination that the writer talks about is being disruptive in the family, a troublemaker. Trying to take a situation where everything is well and good, where there is amity, and creating distrust, unrest. There's a saying among ministers, and I don't know if Jerry ever heard it or not, but I've heard it many times. If you go to a new church, 
Be careful of the first person that invites you out to dinner. He's eager to set you straight before you get the wrong impression from other people. When I was appointed to the church at Gatlinburg, there was a man who was a leader of the church. He and I attended a meeting in Knoxville on evangelism shortly after I arrived there. By the time we got to Knoxville, I knew every fault of every person in that church and the grievances ever of a minister that had ever served that church and their shortcomings. And I knew I'd be next. Because if someone is eager to share with you the faults of others, they'll be just as eager to, eager to share your faults with other people as well. Disrupting. Taking something that is healthy and injecting doubt into it in such a way as it becomes disruptive. These are the seven things that are an abomination to God. Characteristics. We dwell too much upon individual laws and say we must not do these things if we are to please God. But God is far more interested in the attitudes of a and the way in which we live our lives than he is in the things that we do or do not do. So, this is a mirror that the writer of Proverbs asks us to look into. Whether we are arrogant, haughty eyes, have a lying tongue, a wicked heart, bloody hands, Feet, feet that are speedily moving toward sinful experiences, bearing false witness, and being a troublemaker where there's peace. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say the kind of life that we can cultivate and live that will prohibit these other attitudes to ever develop. And that is to keep the admonitions of our fathers, the teachings of our mothers, close to our minds and heart. And this will protect us from all these admonitions. Now let me hastily say, a good father and a good mother, because we read too much in the newspapers about children being taken in the wrong direction by fathers and mothers who deliberately abuse their children. But for the right kind of father and the right kind of mother, taking their teachings and living by them, letting them be the guidelines for your life. My father, whom I mentioned a moment ago as being a man of great integrity, never lectured me about anything in my life. Can't recall a single time that he ever told me to do something or to not do something morally or ethically, except one thing. When he learned that I was going to become a minister, for the first time and the only time in his life, he offered me a word of advice. Don't ever allow the money in the church to pass through your hands. He knew too many times where if money was missing in a church, the minister was the first to be accused. <laughs> and if you don't have it in your hands, you can't take it. When Carlina and I left First Church to go to Kern Church in Oak Ridge, 
we left a staff of about eight people at First Church, went to a church that paid the same salary but had a part-time secretary and a part-time Christian education director and a part-time custodian, and that was all. And I was expected to pick up and do everything that wasn't being done, which I gladly did until I learned that I was supposed to be the custodian. <laughs> that I was to clean the floors and I was to dust in the office area. I was quickly told that it was the responsibility of the minister to go to the church two hours before any service, open the church, check the heater, the air conditioning, be sure that everything is comfortable, wait until everyone leaves and lock up the church and turn down the heat and the air conditioning, and I did. Then the Wednesday nighters began in the fall. Then I was told that I was responsible for collecting all the money for the meals and taking it to the bank and depositing it. And I said, now that's going too far. My father admonished me never to touch the money in the church, and I'm not going to start now. You'll have to find someone else who will take the money and take, handle the money. The next morning I got a call from one of the young leaders of the church who said, if you're not going to do the mundane things of the church, we don't need you. We can hire somebody to come and preach. <laughs> I was appointed in June. In December I went to the bishop and I said, I want an annulment. <laughs> This should never have been, and it's not going to continue. So the next June, I moved. But my father gave sound advice where he saw a problem that could affect my life. He was ready to speak out, but he wasn't one to waste advice. But let me tell you something. He set an example. I never heard my father utter a prayer, but I could see him in prayer. Every evening after dinner, he sat down with his Bible, and for an hour or longer, he would read the Bible. He was elected vice mayor of Mountain City and alderman for about 10 or 15 years, and his biggest constituency were the black people of the community. They loved him because he loved them. Saw no difference at a time when prejudice ran high. He was never absent from his pew on Sunday morning at church. He never sat with my mother. I wondered why. He always got some cronies on the other side of the church and they always sit together on Sunday morning and their wives sit on the other side. <laughs> but I, in the course of his 88 years, never heard anything about him from another person that was uncomplimentary. Never observed any action on his part that would cause embarrassment Never heard him run down another person. I was home from school at the university one Sunday and was displeased with what the minister had said that morning in his sermon. I said so at our lunch table. And my father said, we won't talk about the minister in this house. Well, I came to appreciate that. <laughs> I didn't know how much at the time. But the writer of Proverbs says, Take the teachings of your father and your mother seriously. 
like the Jew and his phylactery with verses of scripture on their forehead or on their breast, keep them ever in your heart and mind, and then these things that are abominations to God will not come in your life. Now that's two of the three things that the writer of Proverbs talked about in today's lessons. The third has to do with prostitutes. So we'll just leave that part out. <laughs> Are there any questions or comments on today's list? Well, the one you left out, it was interesting that, uh, <clears throat> that the, the uh, writer of the lesson interpret that to be that it would be less problematic if a man could prostitute than another man's wife. But I think what I got from that was if you took another man's wife, you got to worry about the other man. See, he, he, he read his lesson. He, he knows why I left out that part. <laughs> I know where to tread and where not to tread. Not that I'm looking for direction. Or... <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting point, even the uh, author of the, the lesson is quite perfect. Yeah. I, I, I guess one, they're both minefields. He had an off day when he wrote that part. <laughs> Any other comment or question? It's along that line in the management business field. I know we've always had the statement saying, if you want to know who's important in an organization, let the plant manager be gone for a week and let the person that takes care of the restroom be gone for a week. <laughs> <laughs> a good point. A good point. <laughs> of children uh, lying. It's very prevalent in, um, in our society today. And while we have, you know, I had a good mom and, and good ways to follow, but I think so many parents don't have that direction to actually uh, model for their children. And we need to be aware of this and, and um, encompass children into that understanding of lying because of all the things within that Proverbs um, lesson. I think lying stems at, at the root of all of those things. And I think you're exactly right. In an example, the phone rings, tell them I'm not here. Yes, you know, these are ways in which we escape and we say to our children, find ways to escape. Mm -hmm. And as I spoke of my father, it was the example and not what he said so much. Mm -hmm. If you had a wonderful uh, father who uh, modeled that and exemplified that for you, and today, uh, we have so many mothers and fathers who aren't taking that role. And the bloody hands become a result mm -hmm. uh, of, I believe. And we see it so much in public life. Mm -hmm. And along that line, the uh, interpreter of the lesson made mention of the fact that the anthropologist Margaret Mead made the statement that in prior generations, the older generation passed on the culture to the youth as they came up. But for the first time now, we're living at a time in which the culture of the youth is originates with them and they pass it upward to the adults. So we're living in a society where it is the youth that determines the culture. And an example was given was Nike shoes. Young people started wearing the fancy Nike hiking or jogging shoes and the first thing the adults are wearing them. And so it is with the computerization of society. Young people learn computers and they older generation and pick it up from them. 
So they become the example so much that we no longer have the power of being the, the right example. And this was. We have to take every opportunity to help children mm -hmm. by modeling for them because sometimes it's not. There's a poem that I can't recall. Uh, Mark Hopkins sat on an end of the log, a pedagogue sat on the other, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know what Mark Hopkins taught. His Latin was pure, poor, his Greek was not, but I want to be the man that Mark Hopkins was. So that's a true teacher, that's a true father. I want to be the father that my father was. Well, our time's gone. Thank you, Vance. Wayne, would you dismiss us in prayer? We're so thankful for all you mean to us. We're so thankful to you for this. Wonderful and valuable and What is important in this world is the excitement to this and the way that we live our lives to show others the way that you want us to live our lives.